Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War I the Dutch Revolt To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War The July Crisis Anniversary Project The Swedish Deluge Britain Goes to War The 1916 To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672 This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered This is the seventh part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Look at the Wars Against the French, which originally aired as a three-part special from the 25th of July to the 5th of August 2012. So welcome back to the war, again! Last time we examined the Allied efforts in Spain, as Napoleon slowly saw that region turn against him, amidst a somewhat heavy-handed and arrogant policy, which included forcibly placing his brother on the Spanish throne. With the Allies evacuated from Spain but by no means out of the conflict, Napoleon had withdrawn his veteran armies to the Rhine as spring 1809 approached. Despite their series of devastating defeats, which included a total reordering of the European status quo, Austria was still, somehow, preparing for another go at Napoleon. The French Emperor was only too happy to oblige. Let's see how it all went down. But before we do that, a tiny reminder that this wonderful five-year birthday special of When Diplomacy Fails and the utter insanity which compelled me to release two episodes every day for five weeks because it's five weeks to run wild and all that jazz is brought to you by When Diplomacy Fails on Patreon. It technically is not, because I started this in, like, December 2016, before I even knew about what Patreon was. But let's just say Patreon is a very, very exciting way for you to support this podcast, 
and entitles you to receive some lovely When Diplomacy Fails goodies, which includes extra audio content, such as extra podcasts, which is obviously always nice. But as well as that, it also entitles you guys to receive some pretty awesome merch as well. So if you're one who enjoys your little bit of share of When Diplomacy Fails merchandise and you think it'd be nice to have a key ring or a pen or a a mug or a t-shirt or a signed book or anything else like that, head on over to WDFpodcast.com and click on the Patreon banner or go to patreon.com forward slash When Diplomacy Fails And you'll find yours truly engaged in some lovely Patreon activities that you guys can take part in yourselves and wholly benefit from. If you'd be willing to do that, then, before long, this podcast will expand to levels and heights previously unimaginable to me. And there's great opportunities in the future for When Diplomacy Fails to cover some really exciting topics. Everything from a mini-series on the career of Otto von Bismarck to a mini-series on Polish history to eventually a full-blown History of Prussia podcast. It's all there, the details are all there, so head on over to the Patreon page and see, just see, if you yourself would like to take part. Right, having listed out that, I'll now take you to episode 7. Thanks for listening, guys, and I hope you enjoy this installment. Never interrupt your enemy when he is making a mistake. Napoleon Bonaparte Despite the devastating military humiliations which Napoleon had inflicted upon them, despite Napoleon's forced ending of the Holy Roman Empire and the deposing of the Emperor, now merely an Austrian Emperor, and despite being virtually alone on the continent, the Austrians were still contemplating war as 1808 drew to a close, amidst Allied actions in Spain and Portugal. To this end, negotiations were conducted with Britain, and the Austrian Archduke Francis II moved his considerable army into place. Vienna's military concerns were profound by early 1809, despite this brave, some would call foolhardy, showing. Austria's army had been mobilised since the end of the War of the Third Coalition, four years before, and the worry in Austria's government was that Vienna would run out of money in mid-1809 if it did not either dissolve or use this army. I mean, how big are we talking? What was the size of this army? Well, it might surprise you to learn that it consisted of an incredible 340,000 soldiers ready for service, and these were backed up by a roughly 220,000 militia and garrison soldier force as home defence. This massive army suggested an underrated level of tenacity present in the Austrian psyche, But as we noted, Francis faced something of a crisis by maintaining its overwhelming numbers for so long. Dissolving it never seemed to cross Francis's mind, and he instead allowed himself to be swayed by the war party into making war against France. The new order forced upon Vienna was simply too radical for many of the older Austrian Habsburg statesmen to bear, and many argued for war once more on the basis that Napoleon had been slowed in Spain, that Iberia was now a trouble spot, and that Britain was finally investing itself with more vigour into the war, after years of simply paying its allies to fight in its name. Even with the British army now accompanying the British navy, Francis knew his options were still limited. For one, the eastern flank would be open, as he could not count on Russia to act with him, since St. Petersburg had been an ally of Napoleon and at war with Britain since 1807. Though Alexander did guarantee that Russia would remain neutral for the duration of the upcoming conflict, 
many in Vienna were immensely fearful of a Russian invasion and the downfall of Vienna to the Slav. In fact, this fear actually compelled Austria's government to invest in more diplomacy with Russia than it did with France. To the reluctant ally of France, the Russian Tsar Alexander may have secretly rooted for Austria against Napoleon, since the previous Franco-Russian declarations of friendship and apparent cooperation paled in the midst of the sheer differences between the Russian and French regimes. Still, Russian neutrality in the event of a war with France was perceived as probably the best deal Austria could get at the time. Prussia initially seemed like a different story. Though Berlin hadn't been beaten as severely as Austria, its recent campaigns had taken their toll on the Prussian psyche, and the Prussian king, Frederick William III, was not serious about taking Napoleon on again. While his ministers worked at reforming the Prussian government and military, acts which would have profound significance for the future progression of the Prussian state, Frederick seemed somewhat resigned to his fate, and it's hard to blame him for this considering the level of power France enjoyed by early 1809, the Spanish ulcer notwithstanding. Since Prussia was a lost cause, Austria would be faced with the familiar prospect of taking on French Europe with just the British Navy in support. The Royal Navy had changed their tactics over the previous years, from a mere blockade of France and its allies to a more active involvement in the continent's military affairs. Those setbacks did of course occur, notably at Corona as we saw last time. The Navy was Britain's most persistent and successful military arm in the war, and their repeated commitment of it to hit-and-run style attacks on fortified theatres of Napoleon's Europe resulted in regular headaches in the Imperial Court. While the British were still reluctant to get as directly involved as a land power would be, mostly because London was still smarting from its Spanish experience, they did promise a campaign somewhere in Northern Europe, probably Germany. Britain had already been supporting Sweden militarily against Russia for the past three years, in what was practically the only time the British and Russian soldiery faced each other in the Anglo-Russian War, although Sweden would eventually sue for peace with Russia in 1810, and give up Finland as part of the peace deal, with results for the map of Northern Europe that were still felt up to the First World War. A Sweden without Finland was no true Swedish Empire, and thus many historians mark 1810, just so you know, as the true ending of that brief but spectacular period in Swedish history that arguably began 200 years ago with the accession to the Swedish throne of Gustavus Adolphus. By early 1809 though, Sweden remained useful for holding Russia back and at least kept that front relatively static while Britain could plan to land in northern Europe. London no doubt hoped to rely upon the hospitality of Prussia in this case, but Frederick William III was in no mood to entertain further allied schemes, and he envisioned even worse defeats if he joined what was looking like a 5th or 6th or 5th and a half coalition, depending on how you view it, against Napoleon by early spring. Faced with Prussian reluctance and not willing to risk another corona in hostile territory, Britain's eventual plan for the next campaigning season would see the focus move not to northern Germany or even to Scandinavia, but to the Netherlands. Britain planned to use the Netherlands to open a second front against the French and hopefully take some pressure off Austria in the process. It was also hoped that Prussia would join Britain and Austria eventually, but few of these plans, incidentally, actually materialised, and this was the campaign that Sean and I covered in our talk episode where his ancestor took part in, and it involved the embarking of 40,000 British soldiers, 
far more than there were in the Iberian theatre at this time, with the plan to take Antwerp and, hopefully, regain the sovereignty of the Netherlands themselves. Though the British took Vlissingen or Flushing after a lengthy siege, the overall initiative was lost due to indecisiveness and strong French resilience, not to mention the onset of terrible bouts of disease. This was the Valkyrin campaign, and was meant to coincide with a new initiative against Napoleon, as Austria declared war on France on the 9th of April 1809, and Britain began landing troops in the Netherlands from the end of July. Austria had begun its side of the bargain by moving into three distinct areas, the first being Italy, the second the Rhineland, and the third the Duchy of Warsaw. All of these moves, though, were countered by a superior French command. In Italy, the armies of Austria were commanded by Archduke John, a younger brother of Archduke Charles. They were expected to be a large force, Napoleon anticipated an excess of 100,000 men, but the Austrians changed their tactics at the last minute, choosing instead to send just half that number to Italy and focusing their main force on the Danube front, arguably out of concern for what Russia would do. The campaign initially went well for John. After following the French rearguard closely, he was able to successfully attack Prince Eugene, stepson of Napoleon, and achieve victory in the Battle of Sakil on the 16th of April, 1809. But the promising start in Italy was undermined by the disaster unfolding on the Danube. Austrian forces had in fact invaded Bavaria on the 10th of April, 1809, so as to prevent it acting against Austria but French troops were on the scene to aid their erstwhile German ally. Archduke Charles commanded the forces, and while successes were made in the beginning due to the poor French command of Berthier, once Napoleon arrived on the 17th of April, the situation largely fell apart for Vienna. Napoleon was able to win the battles of Ebensburg, Tugenhausen, and Eckmühl, the latter being the most decisive when on the 22nd of April, Napoleon's entire force, bar a small garrison south of that town, hurled themselves at the Austrian rear while those Austrians were engaged with the Bavarian and French regiments at the front. The panic that ensued amongst the Austrian forces created a stunning victory for Napoleon and he pushed the Austrians back into Bohemia. While they were there licking their wounds, Napoleon followed up this victory by launching an offensive into the district of Vienna itself. When Johann von Hiller's army lost the Battle of Ebelsburg on the 3rd of May, the door to Vienna was wide open, and on the 13th of May 1809, Vienna was captured by the French for the second time in four years. In the face of such national disasters, Britain felt the pinch to advance the deadline for departing for the Netherlands before the Austrians surrendered. But all was not yet lost for the Habsburgs. In a forgotten battle, the Austrians won the fiercely contested Battle of Aspernessling on the 23rd of May. It seemed as though the situation then might change in favour of Austria. Archduke Charles, who had been in command, won the day after allowing roughly three quarters of Napoleon's force to cross the Danube before attacking them as they attempted to get into order. Napoleon had gambled that Charles wouldn't attack until both forces were lined up, but Charles demonstrated some of the initiative which had been clearly lacking amongst other Allied commanders, as he did the unexpected. What a concept. In case Charles did decide to attack, Napoleon had concentrated some of his best units at the point of the crossing, but this proved insufficient. With their capital in French hands, the Austrians may have fought with more vigour than Napoleon had expected, and having lost his home, Charles may also have been more willing to risk 
less conventional tactics. The ensuing French defeat, which incidentally was Napoleon's first personal defeat in his life, could have been a rout but for Napoleon's maintenance of good order and a prepared withdrawal strategy. Above all though, the campaign was saved because the Austrians did not pursue the French armies, enabling them to recover in the days that followed. Because of this hesitation, Napoleon's defeat represented little more than a tactical victory. Indeed, the Austrian victory proved to be something as a fluke as they soon lost the initiative and Napoleon's strategic brilliance began to take hold again. Austria still held out hope that the British would break through or the Prussians would join them, since such intervention would surely be catastrophic by now for the extended French army. But the attack and aid from Prussia never came, and the promised British campaign in the Netherlands came far too late to effectively aid Austria, since it wasn't until the 30th of July that Britain landed its army in the Netherlands. The Austrians had been defeated at the Battle of Reitzen in Poland on the 19th of April 1809, and had also been beaten out of Italy once an emboldened Eugene heard of Austrian difficulties on the Danube. By this point the Austrians were in practical control over all of Saxony, but Vienna had been captured and once the Battle of Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Vagram was lost on the 6th of July. It was only a matter of time before Austria sued for peace. And this it did after signing an armistice in mid-July and then developing this into the Treaty of Schönbrunn on the 14th of October 1809. The treaty was in many ways a punishment by Napoleon. After all, this was the fourth time Austria had declared war on France in the last 20 years, and the apologists of Napoleon claimed that at this point the French emperor had had more than enough of the Austrians, and he wanted to teach them a lesson. In many ways this was a success. Napoleon seemed to have been successful in teaching Vienna the lesson, because Austria wouldn't act against the French until the next coalition emerged. Napoleon took Carinthia, Carniola and the Adriatic ports for France, while the French ally Bavaria also benefited, gaining the Salzburg area of the Tyrol region, which extended their influence south. Galicia was handed to the Duchy of Warsaw, and a war indemnity of 85 million francs was laid on Vienna to pay. Finally, in a move that the familiarly minded Habsburgs well understood, as per the terms of the peace treaty, Napoleon married Marie Louise, the daughter of Charles, Archduke of Austria. Napoleon's reasoning for doing so was based on the belief that by establishing strong familial ties to Austria, Austria would remain an ally of France in the future. As the winter of 1809 approached then, Napoleon was triumphant over Austria yet again, and was the son-in-law to the Habsburg Emperor. 
But Napoleon overestimated the value that Austria placed on the bonds of marriage, in this case at least, especially when it came to a politically motivated one that Charles did not necessarily want. Better news for Napoleon continued to come from the Netherlands, where the Batavian Republic, since rebranded the Kingdom of the Netherlands under another of Napoleon's brothers, defended its principles and its shores against a British invasion. The Valkyrie campaign, imbued with such high hopes and so far the largest and most ambitious military act Britain had on land, was to end in abject failure. Nearly 40,000 troops and millions of pounds were expended, and though the British captured the island of Valkyrie, for which the campaign is named, and the port of Lissingen, or Flushing to give it its anglicised name, the French reinforced Antwerp, the true British objective, and prevented the British from embarking nearby. As they held the swampy island of Valkyrie, thousands of soldiers became ill with Valkyrie fever, a combination of malaria and typhus, from which thousands died. Such losses compelled the British to evacuate the region altogether by December 1809, representing yet another defeat for the Allies. French troops and ships remained poised at Antwerp, intended, London believed, for an invasion of Britain in the near future, but the attempts to dislodge them had resulted in failure. London now had to grin and bear the losses that 1809 had brought. With Austria beaten decisively even before the invasion of the Netherlands got off the ground, at the Battle of Wagram on the 5th of July, the whole year of 1809 seemed to have been a disaster as the Fifth Coalition came totally apart. Yet there was reasons for Britain to be more positive in Spain. While the previous Iberian campaign had ended badly for Britain, Portugal and Spain, the Spanish and Portuguese guerrillas did not stop waging their small but effective mini-campaigns against the French occupation. Britain had decided to act on this fact yet again in mid-1809. Although it had only just been kicked out of Iberia following the Battle of Corona in January, Arthur Wellesley was given command of a new force designed to escalate the campaign in Spain and Portugal and hopefully create a second front in the war Austria at that stage was fighting against France since the doomed invasion of the Netherlands had yet to take place in this point. So we're going back a little bit from our present coverage, but you should know that Wellesley landed in Portugal in April 1809 and he began to effectively direct an Anglo-Portuguese force against French positions. It's worth mentioning also a William Carr Beresford, who was commander-in-chief of the Portuguese force, appointed by the Portuguese royal family in exile in Brazil. Beresford had done a brilliant job reorganising the Portuguese militias to effectively fight the French. Long before Wellington arrived, Beresford had turned the Portuguese militia from a disorganised and ineffective collection of bandits into a well-disciplined, confident and experienced army. They would be a valuable addition to Wellington's incoming force, and the unsung hero of the Peninsular War may very well be Beresford, who provided the foundations for Wellington's soon-to-be-dangerously-effective Anglo-Portuguese army. This was the army that would transform the Iberian theatre from Spanish ulcer in the side of Napoleon to a very legitimate threat to Napoleonic France. As we've seen then, 1809 was a year which contained many important events in the Napoleonic Wars. The British finally made big military commitments to the war, launching two campaigns in the summer in the form of their Iberian adventures and the Valkyrie campaign in the Netherlands. Napoleon defeated Austria for the fourth time and he married into the Habsburg family, but he suffered his first personal defeat at their hands as well. After signing the peace treaty, Napoleon was faced with the prospect of a fierce guerrilla war in Iberia, 
and a never-ending war, so it seemed, with the British Navy. 1809 was also the year that German nationalism became a problem. Napoleon was nearly assassinated by an 18-year-old German nationalist called Staps, while revolts in the Kingdom of Westphalia and the Tyrol region confirmed that the Germans were less than content with French rule, despite what Napoleon liked to tell himself about the need to spread the revolutionary ideas. Despite this though, 1809 can surely be seen as the high point of French fortunes in the war, which was now entering its final years. Never again would Napoleon appear so victorious in Europe. His allies were already plotting against him, as the situation unfolding in Russia showed. The story of the war with Russia is perhaps the greatest example of a failure in diplomacy, but it is also viewed today through a hideously inaccurate lens of anti-Napoleonic propaganda. To explain what I mean, if you were to ask an average person on the street what the causes for Napoleon's invasion of Russia were, they might stare blankly at you, wave you away, or pretend to be on the phone, but if you were to ask anyone remotely interested in history, even they might have a view that is contradictory to the historical fact. Before I started podcasting, I was of the opinion that Napoleon invaded Russia as part of a grand strategic plan of world or at least European domination. Napoleon, I thought, invaded Russia because he believed he could beat it. The Napoleonic Wars are full of such examples, the Peninsular Wars and the invasion of Switzerland being a few of them. But Russia is not an example of a warlord trying to take over the world, only to ultimately overstretch himself. Napoleon did not want to invade Russia, and Alexander, the Tsar of Russia, did not want a war with Napoleon's super France. Which begs the question then, how did the war take place? Well, to answer this, history friends, we have to backtrack to the point where France and Russia became uneasy friends, the 1807 Treaty of Tilsit. Since the Treaty of Tilsit, Napoleon and Alexander had technically been allies, and indeed, Alexander waged a war against Britain and entered the continental system as per the terms of this treaty. Napoleon must have been delighted with the results of Tilsit then. It secured a large ally for France, and it guaranteed Russian support of the continental system, which Napoleon believed was the best way to defeat Britain. But the years following the treaty, 1807 to 1809, had shown that Russian cooperation had been misleading. The Tsar was in absolutely no position to reinforce the boycott of British goods across his entire country, even if he had wanted to. Additionally, while it was expected that Russia would support and side with Napoleon in future wars, the Russians, in a practical military sense, did very little. The Anglo-Russian War contained no battles of any consequence, and it was mostly contained to the half-hearted Scandinavian front due to the disinterest of both sides in fighting each other, while Austria in 1809 had been able to declare war against France without so much as a protest from Russia. On top of this, and something which concerned Napoleon, upon suffering defeat at the hands of Austria at the Battle of Aspernesling, Napoleon's spies told him of the mood of the Russian nobles when they received the news. They were not concerned or sympathetic, they were in fact encouraged to act against Napoleon, and many Russian nobles were already contemplating declaring war on France in support of Austria, and removing Alexander himself, if necessary, in 1809. As we know, of course, the victory was not made full use of, and Austria collapsed soon after, with the results being that some Russian nobles were momentarily pacified. The Treaty of Tilsit, once seen as favourable and as a chance by Russia to acquire some of Napoleon's spoils, was now viewed in St. Petersburg as the deal which gave Russia nothing and France everything. 
The Duchy of Warsaw was the biggest and most blatant example of French meddling in Eastern affairs, as the Russian nobility saw it at least, and the continental system meant that Russian goods couldn't be exported to British markets, which led to a devaluing of the ruble by 40% between 1808 and 1810. As a result, of course, the black market inevitably grew, as did localised crime. Tsar Alexander was trying his best to contain the anti-French sentiment of his nobility, but the war party began to grow in Russia as the war with Sweden wound down. Napoleon, for his own part, did inflict slights on Russia, to which he seemed oblivious, throughout the period of 1809 to 1810, and these would add to the growing resentment already present in Russia. The Treaty of Schönbrunn, which had ended the most recent war between Austria and France, handed West Galicia to the Duchy of Warsaw, a further reminder to the Russians, who despised the existence of the duchy and, of course, Polish independence, however nominal, that Poland was still not under their control. Those that put the blame on Napoleon for offending Russia by creating the Duchy of Warsaw should remember that Poland had been independent before. Indeed, well, I'm recording this in March, but perhaps by this point the Polish miniseries is already yours. And then you'll find out more about just how independent Poland once was, although perhaps the 18th century isn't the best example of Polish independence, but you get what I mean. Polish miniseries is on the way, thanks to everyone on Patreon. Just when you thought I couldn't get any more Patreon ads into the episode. Anyway, it was only in the last few decades of the 18th century that Russia really attempted to stretch its empire over Polish land, or at least extinguish Polish independence with the level of fervour that would lead to the Polish partitions in 1795. Really, what it comes down to is the question of Napoleon himself. Did he create the Duchy of Warsaw because he believed in Polish sovereignty, or because he wanted to give the Russians an excuse to declare war later on, so that he could fully destroy them? I would be more inclined to go with the former, as well as add in the caveats that Napoleon wanted to extend his influence over Eastern Europe and create a buffer between Russia and the rest of the continent, but Napoleon must have known that Russia would never fully accept the existence of a state that they had spent the last century really trying to extinguish. Tsar Alexander had once famously ordered the removal of the words Pole, Polish and Poland from all correspondences in the Russian language in the years before, thus demonstrating his contempt for the once great state. Russian policy was the extermination of all records of Poland from history, and this Grand Duchy flew in the face of that. Napoleon would have understood or at least known of the history between Russia and Poland, which is why I find it hard to believe that the creation of Poland, while liberating for the Poles of course, and an inherently good move in that sense, was a purely selfless move on the part of Napoleon, though it did gel with Napoleon's revolutionary ethos. In 1810, tensions between the nominal allies were further increased as Napoleon doubled down in his efforts to reinforce the potency of the continental system. In doing so, Napoleon committed another blunder in international relations, as George Hereford in his book, Napoleon's Invasion of Russia, explains. On the 10th of December 1809, Napoleon made what proved to be his last annexations, adding to his immediate empire a large slice of northern Germany. The whole region was already under his control, and no reason was given save that new guarantees had become necessary. The purpose of closing the continent against British trade in the present, and the dim and distant hope of someday building a fleet capable of contending the British supremacy at sea, were the main objects of interest to Napoleon at this time, and they pointed towards the direct control of the coasts of Germany. Unfortunately, Napoleon had given little thought to the fact that the most important of all the dispossessed princes 
the Duke of Oldenburg, was the Tsar's brother-in-law, and that therefore the annexation was a personal injury to Alexander, besides it being an obvious offence against international rights at times of peace to deprive a sovereign in whom he did not even pretend to have found a cause of offence. In short, guys, Napoleon really should have just treaded more carefully or done his research before he went up annexing a whole portion of northern Germany. Soon after, on the 31st of December, 1809, Russia placed increased tariffs, or taxes, on all goods that France bought from Russia. This was seen by Napoleon as an affront to the Treaty of Tilsit, which had guaranteed free trade between the two countries. For the Tsar, though, this was less an act of malice than an act of desperation. Little thought was given by Napoleon, it seems, to the fact that the Russian economy was buckling under the strain of the official boycott of British goods. At the same time, though, it was a Russian demonstration to Napoleon, intended by the Tsar to show that he didn't always have to do everything Napoleon asked. In doing my best to remain objective here, here's a quote from Hereford, explaining the importance of remembering that there's always two sides to everything. Hereford said, The language of diplomacy is naturally one-sided. It is scarcely reasonable to blame Napoleon for making the most, in his communications to the Tsar, of those acts of Russia which might indicate acts of hostility towards France. I don't want to give the impression that Napoleon planned a grand invasion of Russia since day one, a la Adolf Hitler, nor do I want to give the impression that giving sovereignty to the Poles was a bad thing, because, come on, it really wasn't, but it should all be put in perspective. To understand why war broke out, we shouldn't be asking why a certain person did this or that, but instead why such moves offended the other party. When we ask that question, we can better gauge if those moves were intended to offend from the beginning, and therefore if they really deserve the sinister undertones that we often associate with them. We will probably never know completely what Napoleon's true intentions with Poland were, but what we do know is that Russia's growing war party was offended enough by its existence for it to stand as a major cause of the Franco-Russian war. With the rest of his enemies defeated, his empire supreme and perhaps only Iberia to contend with, Napoleon may never have imagined that his star could fall after so many breathtaking victories. In the next episode, the last one of the series, guys, we'll examine how one of the most infamous turnarounds in history took place. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.